This Voice of the Arts podcast is made possible thanks to Carnegie Museum of Art. You're listening to the Voice of the Arts, WQED-FM. I'm Jim Cunningham. Curtis Stewart is here, the soloist for the Johnstown Symphony Orchestra, playing Julia Perry's Violin Concerto at the Pascarella Performing Arts Center with James Blatchley conducting it. Will he, it will be your Western Pennsylvania debut, will it not, Curtis? This that's is the right. first time. <laughs> yes, that's right. My Western PA uh, debut, that's right. I have some family that actually lives in Pittsburgh, Ter- Lancaster, so... That's why. I've been out here, and I've had my first pickled pickled egg yesterday, so I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. So are you in Johnstown now, or are you in New York today? I'm in Johnstown now. I just took the beautiful train ride from New York yesterday, the seven-hour ride. It was actually quite quite pretty. And, uh, Great. Yeah, I- we, have our, we have some education things this afternoon, and then uh, first rehearsal tonight. That is wonderful. I like the train ride from New York to Pittsburgh and Johnstown. Uh, it's slow, but sure, you get there and you get to see the, the scenery as well. Well, it should be a terrific concert. I've got to talk to you about the piece. I want to talk to you a little bit about you and your amazing career. But Julia Perry, this will be a premiere. You've just recently recorded it with James Blatchley. Tell me about your violin concerto and Julia. Um, yeah, so we just recorded this in September. The piece is is a really rich and intricate work from the late 60s, and she absolutely loved the piece. She um, she came back to it about 10 years later after she put the double bar line on the end of it um, to edit and reorchestrate the piece. It was, a, it was kind of a passion project of hers because she never heard it um, played while she was alive, and there wasn't really any um, opportunities for it to be played. Um, she also... Um, had a major stroke in the middle of writing the work. She had to learn how to write with her left hand. And despite all of this, she kind of pushed through and made sure to get that ink on the page. Um, so I, it's it's a passion project of hers, and I've, I've actually grown to love it and associate that similar uh, musical passion uh, for the piece for myself. Tell me about the recording sessions. What orchestra did you use? Um, so this is James James Blashley's um, other project. He runs the Experiential Orchestra based in New York City. Um, they've done some projects, um, a Rite of Spring, the Stravinsky Rite of Spring Dance Party, where people can actually dance and move to the, ori- <laughs> the original Stravinsky. Um, they've done a lot of other creative uh, ways of experiencing the concert, uh, experience in a different way. Um, so we recorded with him at the Domena Center, um, in just one very brief three-hour session, which is really, really short for this, uh, it's, about, it's about 20, 23 minutes piece. So that's really, really, really tight. But we got it done, and it's sounding pretty good. I look forward to hearing it. You had worked with James before? Um, yes. Yeah, so we've been friends for a long time, somewhere between 10 and 15 years. And uh, I've played in various iterations of his ensemble, Um and either as a leader or just within the section. Um, he's such a great leader. He's such an open and uh, thoughtful collaborator. Uh, so we created a whole concert program around the Julia Perry. We played that concert last Dece- December 2022, I guess it was. And once we felt the energy in the room, and it's like we knew we had to record all of the, all the music from that concert. So took us about a year to get all the funds together and the people and the 
the details. So we recorded a year later in September of 2023. Why hasn't it been done more often? Only a couple of performances prior to your recording. That's right. There was only, I unfortunately didn't give the world premiere. I gave the New York City premiere. So the piece has only been performed two times before. So Johnstown is getting the third premiere, <laughs> the Western PA premiere of this performance, um, of this piece. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a thorny piece. It's very difficult for the violin. Um, one major reason it hasn't been played before is um, people didn't have access to the, the score. Um, Roger Zahab is a um, musicologist in, based in Pennsylvania, and he uncovered the score. The, the handwriting of Julia Perry is quite um, muddled just because of what she was going through with her stroke and learning how to write with her left hand. Her hand was quite shaky. So he turned this raw manuscript into a legible score recently. And he was actually the one that gave the world premiere. Um, I believe it was in Pittsburgh. Do you think there are similarities between Julia's story and that of Florence Price, who we also didn't know 10 years ago, but now at last we're hearing Florence Price music? Um, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a similarity in their ethnicity. There's not... Uh, Julia Perry... Um, started her career quite illustriously. She had two Guggenheims, went to Europe, studied with Nadia Boulanger, one of the first women to be performed by the New York Philharmonic. She was, you know, on her way, uh, but she had no familial or um, cultural support around her because her music wasn't, um, some people deemed it to not be, quote, unquote, black enough. It wasn't African enough, actually. And so when she got sick, um, she didn't have the support around her to keep writing. Um, she didn't have the culture bearers did not, you know, continue her music uh, forward. Um, so it was, it's a little different than the, the story of Florence Price. Um, I think Florence Price, they found her actual manuscript in, in, <laughs> in someone's attic or something. I, I can't, I actually don't know the story quite as well. Um, so similar in that the music was found, um, dissimilar in that, um, Julia Perry, actually, her publishing is is just now becoming in order. So a lot of the works that she's written uh, are unavailable for performance just because the publishing is in question. Um, and so they, they, they don't know who should get the rights, who should be paid for the, the performances of the works. So um, it's, it's similar and different at the same time. James Blanchley has chosen an early piece of Julia's for the concert, too. It's called Ye Who Seek the Truth. Are you involved in that? Um, I'm not involved in that, but um, a good colleague of mine, Janina Norpoth, she's in the string quartet, public quartet with me, um, and she did the string arrangement of Ye Who Seek the Truth. It's originally for, voc- uh, for a choir, and, and I believe it's a tenor soloist or a baritone soloist. Uh, and she transferred. Uh, she arranged that for string orchestra with harps. Um, it's a beautiful and simple. It's a very stark contrast to the concerto, which is very intricate and uh, smoldering and kind of melancholy. The Ye Who Seek the Truth is quite bright and hopeful and very pure sounding in, in a harmonic way. Um, it's based on a spiritual, um, you know, Ye Who Seek the Truth will follow me, follow me in the steps of the Lord up to the mountain tops. You'll follow me, uh, ye who seek. Please forgive ye who seek the truth. Something like the words are something like that, um, and so it's very religious. I think, <clears throat> despite the music 
being very bright compared to the concerto, the the tone and the religiousness of both works are similar. It's very kind of somber and serious uh, internally, even though the "You Who Seek the Truth" is is still um, bright on the on the surface in terms of harm, harmony. Well, we we'll very much look forward to hear both of those pieces with Brahms Forth. It's going to be a tremendous concert at the Pascarella Performing Arts Center. Curtis, I want to know about you. You mentioned the public quartet. That's still very much a part of your music making. You also are the chief of the American Composers Orchestra. Yes, I'm, I'm doing all the things. <laughs> I'm wearing all the hats. Yeah, I'm a faculty member at a Juilliard School. I teach chamber music there, and I teach improvised chamber music there as well. Um, and uh, yeah, my, both of my parents are musicians. My mom, my grandma was an opera singer in the Warsaw uh, Opera. Uh, my mom is a, was a violinist there and also uh, studied Greek music because she, she was born in Poland, but she was of Greek ethnicity. Um, and then she moved to the States when uh, she married my dad, who is a jazz musician. He uh, toured the world with, he plays jazz tuba, and he toured the world with Dizzy Gillespie and Sonny Rollins and McCoy Tyner, all the greats uh, in their big bands, as well as small ensembles. So I come from a very uh, diverse kind of musical background, um, but had a severe, pretty intense training in music, uh, in classical music at LaGuardia High School in New York, the Fame School, went over to Eastman up in Rochester. Um, and then uh, I actually studied uh, education for my master's and taught at at LaGuardia High School for 10 years before uh, moving over to Juilliard, which, which is kind of funny. I mean, I actually followed in my dad's footsteps. My dad, after touring, he, he started teaching at LaGuardia, and then he also went to teach at Juilliard for a bit. <laughs> so I'm just following. I'm trying to be like him as I grow up. What a wonderful stew of influences there. It's amazing. Greek jazz violin. I had no idea. Yeah, it's a thing. There's all kinds of stuff out here. But, I mean, I guess that's what, for me, it was normal. Like, all the music that I play, a lot of people see it, and they're like, oh, what is, why would you be so interested in that? Why, why, why aren't you interested in the more, quote-unquote, traditional things? For me, the music outside the box, or, what, or what you, whatever you might call it, um, is exactly the tradition of my family, um, you know, for two or three generations of people doing things that are, others might think of as outside the box is quite traditional for me. So, um, yeah, this, discovering the work of Julia Perry has been a deep passion of mine and exactly what I want to be doing with my music making. Well, your work has taken you into the museum world, too. You did some installations at the Whitney and the, and the Met, so it's uh, all across the, the boundaries of the arts. That's right. I mean, those, the Met was a residency with my quartet, public quartet. We did four or seven, some or something. I can't, this is a while ago, so <laughs> I don't remember. Um, several concerts all throughout the museum reacting to the various galleries and programming co- interactive concerts. There was one time we improvised on Haydn in, in a replica of, of one of the courts in, Haid- in Haydn's time and just imagined what that music might have been like as it was being created. Um, I, the Whitney was a part of Jason Moran and Alicia Hall Moran. Um, project. Those are those are two genius uh, musicians and artists, and I just hung hung out with them for a little bit, um, and just try to pick up some of their energy. 
Anyone listening to this conversation must do themselves a favor and go to YouTube and check out your performance at the Grammys just a couple of years ago with an arrangement of Stevie Wonder's Isn't She Lovely, in which you are on stage in front of the glittering, dressed to the nines Grammy audience and the musicians are waiting to play on stage behind you, but it's just you and your violin for a good four or five minutes. Amazing, Curtis. Yes, thank you. That was a wild, wild experience. I mean, the crowd really loved it. I mean, they were clapping <laughs> and rooting and all that stuff in the middle of my... <laughs> I created this like kind of virtuoso showpiece based on, you know, Stevie Wonder's, you know, theme on a variation. Deep... Uh, variations on a theme by Stevie Wonder, essentially. Um, and uh, they were just all in it, screaming and hollering in, in between the phrases. So, I mean, it, it was pretty cool to be embraced in that way by those by that level of uh, stardom, I guess. <laughs> it was your arrangement? Yeah, I created that. And there's like moment, little moments of improvisation, but it was it's an arrangement that I've, I've written down. Yep. Okay. Who helped you along the way so that you could keep your cool doing that in front of an audience like that and with the musicians on the stage waiting for the next thing to happen behind you, you were cool as a cucumber for it. Now, who gave you the, the advice, the, you know, how to control nerves? Where, where did that come from? Um, I think it just comes from doing it. You get up on that stage, and it, it really is like hell sometimes. I mean, <laughs> the nerves are, are, you know, they never go away. It never goes away. Every time I step up on that stage, it feels like, um, I, like I'm I'm wearing a different body. My fingers feel different. My clothes feel different. My violin feels awkward. It feels like I'm a totally different person up there. Um, and you just have to do it. You just do it so much that you get used to to that that feeling, so that you don't react and and uh, you know freak out. Um, I'm, I think I've had I've watched my dad perform. I've watched my mom perform. I've Watch my colleagues and my quartet. They, we all support each other quite a bit. Um, we talk about being nervous. We don't try to hide it. I think that's a major part of it, um, that you don't feel like ashamed. You're, you're just like, okay, I'm nervous. This is what happens. Um, but, yeah, that was a special kind of nervousness. I've never been quite that <laughs> energized. I mean, I was, I was my, my, we didn't have room back, rooms backstage. We were separated by little curtains. And my curtain mate was um, LeVar Burton, you know, who I had listened to growing up as a little kid on Reading Rainbow and Star Trek. Um, and I, it was just an otherworldly experience um, dealing with that. And just, you know, I, it, I felt prepared because this was a mu music that I felt like I could own. It was music that I created. It was something that I believed in. So it was, it was definitely nervousness, but it was also um, um, energy and and an excitement that I wanted to share, which is a little different than feeling like you have to prove yourself to, to someone. I think those are that's a big difference. It was spectacular. And I have to tell you, I've been a little disappointed in the Grammys in recent years because there has been less of an opening for classical music to turn up. We used to get Yo-Yo Ma or Itzhak Perlman for a, a couple of, of minutes. Now most of the action seems to happen in the pre national telecast on on the networks uh, it happens when they give the classical grammys in the, in the afternoon but i'm i'm hoping that there will be enough pressure so that the academy keeps presenting a violin uh, a violinist or more in the middle of or the, the main broadcast yeah, yeah. fingers crossed 
you know, they're, they're working on it, I think. That's they're good. working on it. I think they're thinking about classical music and they're trying to rethink what, what it is potentially. And so they want to put something out there that, that they believe in, you know. So it's, you know, we're, 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 they're working on it, I think. I have to pass along greetings from a couple of Western Pennsylvania folks who are fans of yours. Uh, we have a tremendous violinist from Pittsburgh named Devin Moore that worked with you. Have you met Devin recently? Have you bumped into him in oh, New York? Oh, yeah, the violist. He's in the Isidora Quartet. They just won the Banff International String Quartet. They're, they're all set for life now. I mean, they're, <laughs> that group is uh, amazing, ridiculous quartet. I mean, just, we were up there at Banff when they won. Um, and they were at Juilliard when I was teach at, when I was working in the chamber music department, and um, well, yeah, he had it, he, he had met you earlier at Chautauqua when the public quartet played at Linnae Hall, and my wife Lori was working with the Three Rivers Young People's Orchestra at the time, and your quartet came down into the basement wherever they were working, and you spent a lot of time working with the young composers who were there and the young musicians, and she was so impressed. Everybody was knocked out, and that was uh, before the pandemic. That goes back quite a while now, but Lori yeah. says hello and uh, passes on her love. Yeah, wow, thank you. That Wow, it's, 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 it's a small world, I guess. <laughs> well, when you do those things to get the next generation going along and, and share the excitement. Uh, that's, to me, so much a part of what you are doing, what it's all about. And I, I, I just want to wish you the very best with your work here in, in Johnstown with the Julia Perry Concerto and Maestro Blatchley. And please come, come back soon. What a joy it is to talk to you, Curtis Stewart. Same, same. Super fun. Wow. Thank you. This Voice of the Arts podcast is made possible thanks to the Carnegie Museum of Art.